Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. The Bible isn't good advice, it's good news. In other words, the Bible is not about running after different keys to different doors. It's about one key that opens every door, and that key is Jesus. Jesus is the key. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Him. And in Him, the Bible says, every promise is yes and amen. In Jesus, we do not have a yes and a no, but we have a resounding yes. A yes that echoes in every situation. God, what about my relationships? Yes. God, what about my finances? Yes. God, what about my future? Yes. God, what about my family? Yes. A resounding yes in Jesus. He unlocks every door. He is the key. He is the answer. And so even though there are principles and there are good things that we can learn from the, you know, wisdom from the Bible, it's ultimately about finding Jesus Christ as our wisdom and allowing Him to transform us from the inside out. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Many people have been disheartened trying to figure out how to live the Bible. And if you can find all of the commands, I mean, that's hard enough to do. Never mind, remember them or then try to live each one. When what the Bible is really telling us is that we cannot do those things in our own strength. You cannot fulfill the commands. You cannot fulfill all the laws in your own ability. You need the presence of Jesus to transform your life so that what we live is what we have become, what Jesus has caused us to be, because right believing leads to right living. You've got to believe and become before you can behave, and that's the the way that God works with us through the Holy Spirit. And so um, hopefully... As we've looked at all the various stories, we've done quite a few weeks in this series, Pictures of Jesus, and all of these messages are available online on soundcloud.com. If you download the app, you'll get a notification every time uh, we post something new there. But as we've been going through this series, we've looked uh, from Abel to Abraham and Isaac to Noah and Jonah and the three men in the fire, you know, from snakes in the wilderness to furnaces in Babylon and from plants in Nineveh to altars in Moriah. Hopefully you've seen that every page whispers his name, that every story connects to what Jesus would do through us and realize that this is not just wishful thinking. You know, a lot of people listen to series like this and they think, well, you know, the pastor just wants to bend the scriptures um, in a way that makes it seem more hopeful or more palatable. But this is the actual word of God. And how we know that it's the actual Word of God is because it was God in the flesh, Jesus, who clarified these stories for us. In so many of the stories, in all of them that we've looked at so far, we found that it was either Jesus directly clarifying that this is a picture of me, or as we looked at last week with Cain and Abel, that it was the epistles of the New Testament that that pointed us towards the fact that the stories that we read in the Old Testament actually have a deeper meaning, a foreshadowing a prophetic effect. They were talking about what Jesus would ultimately do. And hopefully you've seen as we've gone through this series that this is really the Word of God. And as you go through the Old Testament, as you read those stories, you can ask yourself the question, how does this point me to Jesus? How does this point to what Jesus has done for me? 
because it really is all about Him. And so today I want to look at one of the most consistent, overarching symbols of Jesus in all of Scripture. We find it all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's something that runs as a thread through the entire Bible, and this is the image of Jesus as the Lamb of God, as the Lamb of God. And, and often we read about the blood of the Lamb. I mean, as Christians, I often think about if you were a non-Christian and you came into a church and that church stands up and they start singing, oh, the blood of Jesus, you know, people were like kind of back out slowly, you know, like what? They are singing about blood in this place, you know? And what is the deal with the blood of Jesus? What is the deal with the blood shed in the Bible and, and the declarations about there being power in the blood of Jesus as the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world? All of these kinds of imagery, you know, as Christians, you can kind of become, um, you know, just used to that kind of that language. But often if you take a step back, you're like, well, that actually sounds quite weird. And we don't take enough time to understand it or to unlock the meaning in it. And that's what I would like to do today because it really goes further and deeper than what we can really know. It really is so deep. It's so rich. And I feel so inadequate even trying to present on the blood of Jesus, even trying to talk to you today and even trying to you know, give some glimpse into the power of the blood of Jesus. I'm completely inadequate in being able to do that. And it's only through the Holy Spirit that we can truly come to understand the power in the blood of Jesus. I'm going to share a message with you entitled today, The Blood of the Lamb. Uh, we only have two weeks left in the series, this one today, and we'll be wrapping up next Sunday. Um, it's going to be an amazing uh, service next Sunday as well. But the blood of the Lamb today, um, this image represented all the way from Genesis to Revelation, in what some have called the scarlet thread, the scarlet thread. We find that the high priests in Israel, the curtain in the temple, and all of those things, God commanded that one of the threads that would be used to make these garments would be a scarlet thread. And if you read from Genesis to Revelation, there's like a thread of scarlet, of blood, of red that runs through the entire Bible. Some scholars have said, if you cut the Bible, it bleeds the blood of Jesus. It doesn't matter where you cut it, it bleeds the blood of Jesus. This is an, a major theme in Scripture, and it runs from beginning to end like the plot line of redemption that God develops throughout the Word, culminating in heaven itself, we see in the book of Revelation. So we're going to go and, and take a little journey today. And we're going to start off in Genesis, where we have the fall of mankind. So God created people to be in relationship with Him. And at one point, they, they sin, which means to miss the mark, which means they, they stepped outside of their trust in God and their relationship with God. And all of mankind, as a result, is affected by the sin nature. Because God is completely righteous, what sin did in the lives of humanity and in all of our lives, is it separated us from God. And everybody born into this world from that time is born with a sin nature. In other words, it's not enough to just say, I'm not going to sin, because there's something more powerful in you called sin that will cause you to sin even when you don't want to. This is why we need salvation from sin. We need healing from sin. And this sin separated us from God and it became the human condition. All of us are born into sin, and all of us have sinned. So Romans 6 verse 23 
it puts very bluntly and, and very straightforwardly, if that's a word, um, the state of humanity and the result of our sin. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then it says, the wages of sin in Romans 6.23 is death. It's death. It, death is to be separated from God, spiritual death. And so this was the state of humanity. In other words, the result of sin in our lives is death and judgment. And there is no other way to make up for our sin. There's nothing that we can do. A lot of people have this idea of heaven. Have you ever asked people, do you think you're going to heaven? And they, how many says no, I think I'm going to hell? Nobody says that, right? Everybody wants to believe that they've just cracked the nod into heaven. You ask somebody, hey, do you believe you're going to heaven? They'll say yes. You say, why? They say, well, you know, I have done some bad things, but ultimately I think the good things that I've done outweighs the bad things, right? If that were true, the symbol of Christianity would be scales and not the cross. All you would then need to do is just make sure that your good works kind of just outweigh slightly your bad ones, and all of us still have this weird belief that if we did enough good, we could get into heaven. A lot of people then compare themselves to like the worst, and they would say, well, you know what? I'm not Hitler. I'm not perfect, but I haven't killed anybody, you know? Like, that's a great bar to set, okay? So you didn't gas millions of people in the chamber. Well done, you're going to heaven, you know? Like, and this is how we would take ourselves and compare ourselves to the worst of the worst and say, I think I'll make it. I think I'll make it. People think that they can atone for sin by weighing up good versus evil in their lives. But the symbol of Christianity is not the scales. The symbol of Christianity is also not a ladder. Have you ever seen anybody like wearing a chain with a little ladder on it? So what's that? No, that's my faith. Like I'm climbing, I'm climbing ascending levels. Too many Christians believe it's about ascending levels. That's actually a form of Gnosticism. It's, an old, it's, an, it's a very old kind of false belief that was condemned already by the church fathers. It's, 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 oh, through special revelation and knowledge, I will ascend the levels of spirituality until I'm dining with angels and speaking to, you know, it's just like, what are you talking about? That's not the, that's not the gospel. It's not a ladder. This is not a system that you work. This is not Freemasonry. There's no 32 steps to the top. The symbol of Christianity is not the scales and it's not the ladder. It's the cross. And what is the cross? It's a symbol of death. It's an instrument of death. So strange that in Christianity, our hope is in an instrument of death. But the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And that there can be no release from the guilt unless somebody pays the complete price, which is the price of a life. You cannot redeem a life without full payment. You cannot half atone. If you're paying for sin, there's no laybys. There's no deposit and I'll get the rest later. You can't take out a short-term loan on this. It's full payment up front or no redemption at all. And the word redemption actually means to buy back at a price. And the price is the price of a life. 
And this is what God understood. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Again, what's the deal with the blood? Why is the blood so important? Why does God require that blood be shed in order for there to be forgiveness for sins? This is, when you read it in the Old Testament without understanding, this seems so heavy. Leviticus 17 verse 11 clarifies for us a little bit. This is when God instituted through the Old Testament the commands of the sacrifices. And in 17 verse 11 it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. So you see, it's not so much about the blood as it's about the life that's in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You see, this is why the blood of Jesus is important. Because what it represents is the life of Jesus given up for all of us. He made atonement. He paid the price. He brought us back. We were in a position of sin and separation from God. And God said, I'm going to buy my people back. I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to make full payment for their redemption. It was a greater price than any of us could have paid. And so God sets about paying the price himself. But here's the thing. How do you get God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who is uncreated and eternal and immortal, how do you get him to die? How do you cut God and make him bleed? It's impossible. And so what God did is he became man. He sent his son in the form of a man and he laid down his rights as God and he lived among us as one despised, as one as from whom men hid their faces. There was nothing stately that we should look at him and desire him. He just lived amongst us as a normal human being, God in the flesh, a God who could bleed, a God who could feel, a God who could suffer, a God who could die. Why? so that he could give up his life for us. This is the beauty of what God did for us through Jesus. It's the greatest romance novel that you've ever read. It's the, there's no, you can watch The Notebook. You can watch any Nicholas Sparks movie. Nothing comes close to the God who laid down his rights as God and stepped into earth, taking on the form of a man so that he could die for the people he loved. And he needed to bleed because that was his life. Life is in the blood. And so this is the plan. And like a trail of breadcrumbs throughout Scripture, God leaves us this thread of scarlet to foreshadow the price that he would pay. All the way from Genesis, he goes, I'm going to pay with my blood. I'm going to be the sacrifice. I'm going to give up my life. Right from Genesis, he shows us that this is God's ultimate plan. We see that Adam and Eve sinned, and after they sinned, they became aware of good and evil, and they felt shame. Have you ever felt shame? Like you've done something that you knew you shouldn't have done, and instantly there's that sense of shame, and you want to kind of hide yourself. You know, when, when children tell lies, they cover their mouths immediately. They're like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't have done that. As adults, we become a bit more refined. We tell a lie and we're like, you know, 
because we are aware of our guilt. And so Adam and Eve sinned. They sinned, and immediately they try and cover themselves up. In Genesis 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All of a sudden, they, they're like, I need to cover my nakedness. I, I, I have shame. They experienced shame for the first time. And we still do this. When we sin, we try to cover up. We lie about it. We hide it. We're not, we're not open about it. But all of our coverings are insufficient. And look at this hint, this clue of what God would do to cover our shame right from the beginning. Adam and Eve are not even out of the garden yet. And in Genesis 3 verse, verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Before he sends them out, he's like, you guys need some proper clothes. But guess what he does? He makes them garments of skin. In other words, animals had to die, had to be sacrificed in order to cover their shame. And already in Genesis we see this is a foreshadowing of how the death of Jesus would ultimately cover our shame. How God through that sacrifice would cover our nakedness and our guilt and our shame. And God does it right in the beginning of Genesis through the first sacrifice that we find in Scripture, which was the sacrifice of those animals to cover Adam and Eve. Blood was shed to cover their shame. In Galatians 3 verse 27, it says, For as many, as, you, uh, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ like the putting on of new clothes. Isn't that amazing? Just like Adam and Eve were covered in new clothes that God made for them, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you're baptized, you've put on new clothes. You've put on Christ. And when God looks at you, He no longer sees your shame. He no longer sees your sin. He no longer desires judgment. Judgment has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He sees you as His son, as His daughter, accepted, righteous, loved, covered in Jesus. It just points towards Jesus. What is it in your life that you're ashamed of? What has caused you to hide from God? Jesus is your redemption. Jesus is your righteousness. There is no need for you to be ashamed. We see later on as God calls Abraham, he cuts covenant with him. And he actually calls, and this is an ancient uh, uh, way of cutting covenant. And a covenant was like the strongest, it's the, the closest we have to it is something like marriage, where you actually promise and commit to each other, and not only to each other, but even that your children and your children's children in perpetuity would remain in this covenant with one another. It's a binding together in a supernatural contract. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And he tells him, I want you to go and get, and he gets um, the heifer, he gets, and, and, he, and he cuts it in half, and he puts it down, and he takes these animals and puts them down, and then he walks in a figure of eight. But it says this, it says, God came and passed through. God made covenant with, Ab uh, with Abraham. He established that covenant. But again, an animal had to be sacrificed for it. And what's so amazing about the covenant is that ultimately what you were saying is, is that as this animal is on the ground and has died, so be it with me if I break this covenant. Guess what we did as people? 
We broke the covenant. So what did God do? He came and he died so that we wouldn't have to. Again, there was the shedding of blood in the covenant with Abraham. Fast forward past the lamb that Abel offered that we looked at last week and the ram that was given to Abraham to sacrifice and many more examples of these sacrifices that we find in the Old Testament. And we find the Israelites as slaves in Egypt crying out to God for deliverance. The nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants, they've gone into Egypt and, and, and they multiplied there. They had favor in the beginning, but generations so now there's millions of them living in the land of Goshen in, in, in Egypt. And, and this is a picture of extreme hardship as their rulers began to fear them and suppress them and oppress them and, and, and treat them harshly. They are under the inescapable rulership of one nation over another. And ultimately what this represents is our slavery to sin. Our slavery to sin. We've been taken hostage Sin commands our actions and rules us and ultimately destroys us. Many people, when they say, I just want freedom to do what I want. I just want to go out. I want to live any way I want to live, and I don't want anybody to tell me what I can and cannot do. What you really want is just freedom from having to resist doing what you don't want to do. It's difficult to resist and to fail again and again and again. I so many times wanted to overcome sin in my life, and I would commit to not sinning and not sinning and not sinning, and, and it's tiring trying and failing over and over again. It makes you want to give up. For a lot of people, that's how they define freedom, is I'm not going to try to be good anymore. I've just given up. It's something we could never escape. It, it was our nature. But Romans 6 verse 17 says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, a slave of sin, have become obedient from the heart, having been set free from sin. See, that picture of the slaves in Egypt being sent, set free is a picture of what Jesus would do for us. God sends Moses with a message that he will mightily rescue his people. And there's the showdown that happens between Moses and Pharaoh and the people of Israel and the people of Egypt that foreshadows the battle between God and the forces of evil that have dominated our lives. Ten plagues hit Egypt at that time. And if you go through the plagues, we don't have time for it this morning, every single one of the plagues combated or, or directly contradicted one of the main gods of Egypt. So if you have the sun god, Ra, God says, I'll blot out the sun. I'll blot out the sun. If you have the god of the harvest, God says, I'll send the locust to destroy the harvest. If you have the god of the river, God says, I will turn the river into blood. He was ultimately showing the nations through the empire of Egypt that he is the one true God and that no other God can compete with him. And so he goes and the ten plagues hit Egypt and, and, and he makes this declaration. But the final plague is the plague of death. And here's how God tells the Israelites to overcome death. This is how you will overcome the plague of death. In Exodus 12, verse 3 and verse 5, he says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, 
a male, a year old, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. This is the Passover lamb. Take the lamb without spot, without blemish, prepare it, and on the same time, on the same day, you will all kill the lamb. In verse 7 it says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. The blood shall be a sign for you and the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is judgment and the blood of the lamb spread on the lintels of the doors. This perfect lamb that had been sacrificed causes death and the plague of death to pass over that house, to lose its power over that house. And again, this is a beautiful picture of what God would do for us. The next morning, after the plague of death hit Egypt, Pharaoh releases the Israelites from slavery. And this is an image of how the blood of Jesus releases us from slavery to sin and to death. It's so specific. And I could spend literally five years breaking this down. We could go into the, into the Passover meal and how every part represents Jesus. But, but just to give you a little bit of a taste of it, in John 19 verse 4, we read there that it says the lamb was to be without spot and blemish. Jesus comes to the Passover and he gets arrested on the same night that the lambs were being prepared in, in Israel. And in verse 19, as the priests were busy looking at the, at the, at the, and inspecting the lambs in the temple for the sacrifice, at the same time, Pilate is, Pontius Pilate is busy inspecting Jesus. And this is what he says in verse 19, chapter 19, verse 4. It says, Pilate went out, and again he said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, talking about Jesus, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. The spotless lamb. The priests are busy inspecting the lamb in the temple. Pontius Pilate is inspecting Jesus, and both declare this is a lamb without blemish. Jesus is that lamb, declared. He then goes and he has, um, or before that when Jesus was in the, the last supper with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, there's unleavened bread hidden in the cloth. And to this day, when, when Jews practice the, their cedar dinner um, on, on the nights of Passover, they take the bread and they hide it in the cloth, and then they take it out again, representing the, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus takes that same bread and breaks it and says, see, this is my body broken for you. He is the Passover. He is the Passover lamb, and every bit of it is symbolism. In Exodus 12, verse 46, it says, It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. When the, when the Israelites prepared the Passover, they weren't allowed to break the bones of the lamb. And you read that in the Old Testament, you're like, what is God on about here? Why can't they break the bones? Psalm 34, verse 20 says, He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Listen to how this is fulfilled in John 9, 19, verse 31. It says, Now when the day, it was the day of, the, of preparation of the Passover, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders 
did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. Remember, none of it was to be left over the next morning. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. This would cause the, those on the cross to die quicker. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Isn't that incredible? God says, prepare the Passover lamb, don't break its legs. Jesus' legs were not broken on the cross either. It was a foretelling down to the very minute that Jesus died, being the exact moment that the priests were sacrificing the Passover lamb in the temple. All of it is pointing to Jesus. This is why John the Baptist so boldly declared in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This thread of salvation through blood continues in the law of Moses. On the Day of Atonement, they were to take two goats, which often represent sin and the evil one, and, and two goats, many people think there was only one on the Day of Atonement, but the one goat was sacrificed and killed, they cast lots, and the one was killed as a sin offering, and the other one was released as a scapegoat, this is where our term scapegoat comes from, and this is how it would happen in Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16 verse 15, it says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring the blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat, the blood that makes atonement for the sins of Israel. Again, this whole practice was a picture of what Jesus would do for us. The sprinkling of his blood has made us clean. But there was a second goat, and a lot of people don't know about this goat. In Leviticus 16, 20, it says, Then he shall present the live goat, and Aaron the high priest shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote, uninhabited area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, I was reading in the Talmud, in the Jewish rabbinical writings of how they used to do this, and they would take a scarlet tongue made out of wool, and in order to distinguish one goat from the other, they would tie that scarlet wool to this goat's head, and it was led out. The Bible says, though your sins were as scarlet, I will wash you and make you white as snow. And so this goat was led through Solomon's porch out the golden gate or the gate on the eastern side of Jerusalem into the garden of Gethsemane. And from there, a man would take him and walk him out into the uninhabited areas and there the goat would be abandoned. Guess where Jesus was abandoned? Guess where Jesus' disciples ran away and left him alone? In the garden of Gethsemane right in that place where the scapegoat would be handed over. Jesus was handed over to the Sadducees and the, and, and the army of the Pharisees. Even the scapegoat. Jesus is our scapegoat that has taken our iniquities. Do you want to know what that gate looks like right now? This is just a fun fact. This is the golden gate in Israel, in Jerusalem right now. 
it opens up onto this graveyard just in front of the Garden of Gethsemane. And as you can see, it's sealed up. The, it's currently in the possession of um, the Arab nation, and they believe that it is entirely their possession. And in order to combat the Jewish customs, etc., they sealed it up, not knowing that even that act fulfilled the Scriptures. In Ezekiel chapter 44... Sorry, I've touched something here. There we go. In Ezekiel chapter number 44, verse 1 to 3, it says, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it, talking about Jesus. Therefore, it shall remain shut. It is for a prince, the prince. That gate will remain shut until Jesus returns. Many believe that's the gate through which he will enter, the gate through which the scapegoat was let out, through which Jesus was taken. That's the, that's the gate that Jesus will return through. We see Rahab in the nation of, of, of Jericho as she was a prostitute herself, but yet had faith in the God of Israel and took in the spies, risking her own life. This is what the spies told her to do in order to be saved from the destruction of the city of Jericho. In Joshua 2 verse 18, she says, Behold, the, 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 the spies say to her, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather it into your house, your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And we know the story. She takes a scarlet ribbon or a scarlet cord. She ties it to the window, and when all of Jericho falls, her house remains standing, saved from the saved from destruction. When Jesus was arrested, what did they put on him? Matthew 27, 28. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They put a scarlet robe on him. He is the salvation. He is the cord. There's so many more examples. There's so many more things that we could look at how this thread runs throughout Scripture. But at the end of the day, we know that we have been redeemed. It is a truth from beginning to end, and it stands and holds true in heaven today. We've been doing a series on Revelation, and we'll get back to it pretty soon. But in Revelation 5 verse 6, it says, And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Even in heaven, that image of the Lamb, Jesus paying the price for the sins of mankind. What the elders around the throne then burst out saying, three verses later, it says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You ransomed, you bought back, you redeemed by your blood. That's why Jesus is worthy. Revelation 12 tells us that the blood of Jesus, our relationship with Jesus, our righteousness with Jesus, 
is still the only thing that we stand on for victory in this life as we overcome the enemy against us. In Revelations 12, 11, it says, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The cross, the blood of Jesus poured out, the finished work, Jesus hanging on the cross, crying out, it is finished. It is our salvation. It is our victory. It is our hope. It is our redemption. And God couldn't make it clear enough. So rather than reading Leviticus and going, why did so many pets have to die? <laughs> Understand that God was making it unmistakable. Unmistakable that there is no atonement for sin outside of the blood of Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that the priests stood there year in and year out, and by the sacrifice of, 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 of goats and bulls and all these things, sin could never be removed. But now, by the sacrifice of the Lamb, by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He has made the sacrifice and paid the price once and for all and our sins have been wiped away. Though your sins were as scarlet, you have been washed as white as snow. That is you this morning. That's every single one of us. Your shame has been covered. Your guilt has been taken away. Your judgment passed onto the scapegoat and you stand completely free of sin before God. Not that we don't still struggle. There's a process of sanctification. But your position is righteous, holy, blameless before God. And that's why we are no longer separated. That's the great work that Jesus has done in reuniting us with the Father. And the rope that tied us to the Father was the scarlet cord of Scripture. The grace of God. The love of God. The sacrifice.